No, well, that's why we didn't. No, that's why we don't. That's why we don't do it that way. Get it? <laughs> All right, here we go. All set? I am. I like where the levels are. Looking good. I don't know. Can you even do that anymore? <laughs> that was a. You are way too young to know that. Freddie Prinz was a uh, very popular Hispanic comedian in the late seventies. Had a show called Chico and the Man, and um, he sadly died of a drug overdose. And he was hugely popular. And uh, very young guy within his early twenties just had a huge jump, a burst of fame. Went from unknown to superstar in a couple of years and that's yeah yeah that's his son freddie prince jr yeah but i don't even think people your age i don't even know if he bother if he needs to even put the junior anymore because i don't think anybody even remembers freddie prince but anyway that was his catchphrase on chico and the man looking good <laughs> okay ready to go i'll give you the um i'll give you the uh what are they called the three s's right <laughs> okay Okay, focus, Jim. <laughs> you have a podcast to do. Okay, here we go. And uh, I'll give you the countdown. You give me the music, I'll give you a podcast. Put it in the book. 347. 347. Ready? Star, smile, strong. 3, 2, 1. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. There we are. The music sounds so, 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 so. the music a little too loud. Can we just play that a second? I felt like I was screaming. It might be a little better. Right? I don't know if it's any different, but it feels different. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod. Whoop. <laughs> A little quick on the uh, trigger finger there, Reggie. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, this is Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. Uh, there we are. And don't forget, hitting that play button doesn't excuse you from added responsibility. It's just to get out there and spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcastic. And it should be theirs too. What the heck? Where they've been? It's 2023 already. See? Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. You do get it from a different platform. And if you like what you hear, also, 
go to WGNRadio.com. Go to the podcast section. Not only hitting the prompt for this podcast will get you the current podcast, but take a look in there. There's a massive amount of podcasts just waiting for you to hear from three weeks ago, from one week ago, from three years ago. Just keep scrolling down, scrolling down. They keep popping up and popping up. Don't forget, listen to the past so you know where we're going in the future. And right now, the future looks like we're going to episode number 347. I was never one for soap operas. And for you little leaguers out there, uh, there, yes, there are still some soap operas around. Uh, These were mostly from their beginnings of the early days of television, meant to attract female audiences with long, sprawling, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly stories about the tangled lives and gnarled relationships and romances of different people in different towns or in different professions, ongoing with cliffhangers and um, overdramatic circumstances, sometimes to the point of absurdity. They always liked the, uh, the twins, when there was always some kind of a, a major plot going on and, and maybe a crime was involved or something else, then as a way to get out of it, to make sure that the the, the popular character who had been driving that storyline could still stay on the show, they found a way to have an evil twin so that the twin could take the the you know the blame and then we could still have our popular character remain on the show without going to prison. (laughs) And as silly and as absurd, as I said, as that uh, turned out to be, the audience didn't care. (laughs) They just kept watching it. And so there were outrageous, outlandish storylines, and it didn't matter. Now, of course, this was a time when um, society was much different in terms of our culture. You had men going out to work every day, and you had women staying home, raising the kids, and being housewives, if you will. That is a term that I don't even know if they use that word anymore, really. Um, there's stay-at-home moms. We've moved away from housewives. It, 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 had a, it, it, it was the common phrase, and then it became uh, sort of a... a uh, a rallying cry during the feminism ages of the of the 70s that women did not want to just be viewed as housewives uh, but wanted to be viewed as whole people and have their own goals and ambitions and dreams. And in many cases, in 2023, women are the breadwinners in the family. Uh, so we've really had a, a, a very uh, transformational era in the last 50 years or so, 55 years uh, of when the feminism movement 
took hold. And even though we don't have the Equal Rights Amendment, which some people in the 70s tried to work for in order to give women some enumerated rights in the Constitution, it didn't pass. But there's no question that the role of women, the prominence of women, the empowerment of women um, has taken on a prominent role over the last 50 years and certainly in the last 20 years. Uh, but in the early days of television, when you had a captive audience of women at home, these television versions of those romance novels, those Harlequin romances, what you, I don't even know if they even make those anymore. They used to be these little paperback books that you could find in a drugstore or at a bookstore, mostly on a little rack. And they had these romantic, uh, just you know, blissful covers of men and women in an embrace. That's where Fabio, the model Fabio, got his start. He was one of the models and somehow was able to build a career off of that. But he was a model on these, these little small paperbacks that uh, were just filled with... Um, with uh, romance and lust. Uh, they never were pornographic. That was the difference. <laughs> There's such a, it's, it's such a great dichotomy between men and women. Women like the romance and the, the, the entire ambiance and the, 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 uh, the setup. Uh, and men just, you know, they want to get down to business. And even in this situation, you know, there were these romance novels that were for women. And then there was something called Penthouse Forum, which were probably fake letters that were supposedly written to the editor of Penthouse Magazine, the men's magazine, which featured nude women. I don't even know if Penthouse is around anymore. Uh, and those were pretty graphic and pretty pornographic, if you will. And so it's so funny. They were both written materials, but women's, there were euphemisms for body parts and there were euphemisms for uh, the actual act. And then in the penthouse forum, it was all there in its most graphic detail and the adjectives and the nouns that were created uh, are still mind boggling. <laughs> But there's no question that uh, a major driver of the popularity of television was the soap opera. And there, were, they, there have been many that have been on for, for decades, ever, ever since uh, you know, the, the beginning of television. They were called soap operas because they were sponsored by, wait for it, <laughs> mostly... Soap companies, and you say, Jim, why soap companies? Well, if your main audience is a housewife, is a, is a, is a woman whose main task in the household dynamic is to clean things and keep the house up, that was the that was the goal and uh, in the 50s and 40s and 30s that was the that was the epitome right oh a clean house so a clean house needed different kinds of 
cleaning materials, soaps to clean the counters and clean your clothes and clean, clean, clean soaps of all kind. And so those were some of the leading companies in this country at that time. And they had the money to advertise on television. Now, there was other companies that that advertised on TV. There's no question. Car companies and, and uh, you know, medicines, pills. But during these shows that were mainly on in the late morning after the kids went to school, late morning and early afternoon, just now, like now that we have all these talk shows or reality shows or panel shows from 10 in the morning until 2 or 3 in the afternoon or 4 when the you know like your Maury Poviches and and you know and all these other things and these reality shows uh the soap operas were king and they dominated every network had them days of our lives general hospital all my children as the world turns um, you name it. There were they were they were all over the place, and some are still around, but they're certainly not as popular as they used to be. As is most things today on television, because of the wide range of options that we have, people aren't tied to their televisions at a certain time anymore. Those days are over. I remember in the mid eighties. General Hospital uh, was so popular uh, that, uh, I mean, there was a, a, a storyline. And, and there was, it was basically like All My Children and General Hospital were the, the two biggest ones, especially, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the 80s. That's, it, it, I mean, there's no question in the 60s and 70s they were popular. But then as the pop culture... Um, you know, as pop culture got more, uh, more popular and more elevated into the the common, um, in the in the common, I guess work. You know, public square. Everything got elevated in the eighties, especially thanks to MTV and everything else. Pop culture really changed. The baby boomers started to take over, and pop culture became part of the culture and general hospital and all my children really were were the two leading ones and general hospital then took off because of a storyline between a couple named luke and laura who just became the thing and when luke and laura got married holy cow i mean that was literally you know these the, that was the, that was that was a time when all, as I said before, those days are over now. But there was a time when people did just sit down and watch television at one time in one place. And uh, I believe it was in the early 80s, 1981 or so, that they uh, they got married. And it just was the huge, it was just a huge, huge to do. Everybody was watching Luke and Laura's wedding. and uh, But as time went on and then video got more, you know, video. Don't forget, 1981, we still didn't really have VCRs yet. 
when the VCR came along in the in the in two or three years after that, and and then DVDs, and then obviously the computer took over. The soap operas faded off, and then the real death knell for soap operas was reality television. That's what really killed. Well, it was it was two things: the popularity of the talk show, the daytime talk show led by well, Phil Donahue was the was the was the forerunner, and he was really the the, the main guy for many years in the late seventies and early eighties. But then when Oprah came by, she just uh, she just steamrolled over everything, and then and then she gave birth to ev- all uh, you know. Just a that was it. That was the new norm for television. Was the 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 daytime talk show, and then everybody's and their brother had a had a daytime talk show for the next thirty years, um, and still do to some extent. Right? We've got Sherry Shepard now, and Drew Barrymore. That has not died down. It it wasn't always celebrities it's funny how that's happened they were mostly hosts that were either news people or had television experience but now that has faded off and now it's mostly former uh, or current actors or music people kelly clarkson that have a an established brand and they get the shows jennifer hudson you know, ricky lake uh, you know, Rachel Ray was not so much, but she's still around, but that was a cooking thing. But she was given, she was anointed by Oprah. Anything who came through Oprah, for the most part, has succeeded. Dr. Phil is still around. When Oprah gives you the the, the anointing, um, that that's usually it. Gail King is on in the morning now. Anybody Oprah deems as worthy um, is, is set for life. Um. But that's what those became so popular and so cheap to produce. That's a key thing, too. You have to remember these soap operas employed a lot of people to act. There's a lot of characters, directors, you know, sets, all these different sets that would have to be created. And, and there's a lot going on. Costume. There's a lot of money uh, that went into putting these uh, these daytime soaps on because they were on every day. So a lot of people employed, a lot of the stars that became huge movie stars and television stars got their start in soap operas because they it was a job and uh, they were starting out and they took it and then they got some popularity. John Stamos was on General Hospital. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Some of the, the, there's many people that started out in, in soap operas. But the death knell for the soap opera really happened, I would think, um, uh, you know, in the in the it started to to sink down in the in the mid to late eighties, and then certainly in the nineties, um, when with the the birth of the talk show, and that's the same thing that happened to the game shows. Game shows dominated uh, television. It was game shows and soap operas, and all the game shows, those early game shows. If you watch the early game shows, many of them were once again fashioned to appeal to. The Housewife, what's the longest-running game show in the world right now? Still on. Price is right. Well, who would know prices? Well, the people that go to shop for the groceries. Well, at that time, who was that? It was the women, right? Cooking shows. Why were cooking shows popular? Well, who was home watching those during the day? And who needed to cook a dinner for their family? 
three or four or five hours later. No question as to why the, you know, the evolution of television, what it was. It was based on, as makes sense, the audience that it was serving at those different times. But as I said, uh, as, as, as popular as the, the soap operas were, uh, the, the daytime shows became popular. Um, and then, of course, in the 2000s, uh, reality television. And reality wasn't even was, was and reality was more absurd than any storyline on the soap operas, <laughs> and so basically, reality shows took the place of soap operas, using quote unquote real people, even though reality shows and that needs to be in quotes were all scripted and still are. They pass themselves off as if they're not, but they are. There's people that write those shows and and edit them in a way they are basically scripted shows in the guise of reality, quote-unquote, because they're using real people as opposed to actors. But they're really still soap operas, which I think is interesting. It's absurd and goofy and crazy and as the storylines and the behaviors were in the soap operas, they only showed that as crazy and outrageous and unbelievable as people thought these storylines were for, for decades in the soap operas, they've been only trumped, no pun intended, by reality, by the way people act. Now they're primetime you know, reality shows as well as daytime reality shows. But uh, But the soap opera still exists to some extent, but it's on life support. In terms, in, 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 its, in its truest sense, as I said, you can, you can basically say that reality shows are soap operas. And in the 80s and 90s, too, we saw how the soap opera format and genre became a primetime and nighttime phenomenon. And so pretty much in the late 70s and then certainly in the 80s, you had nighttime soap operas that then dominated because they were so popular during the day with the Luke and Laura's and the All My Children's and all this stuff that the network said, well, wait a minute, maybe if we can take that format and bring it into nighttime, give the stories a little edge so men might be interested but still have that romance still have the 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 key pillars of a of a soap opera but then also give some aspects that would appeal to men well we've got a uh, now we've got a winning formula and they certainly did and so there was a time in the mid 80s and early 90s when the networks were filled with date with with nighttime soap operas such as Dallas probably the most famous and popular of all with the who shot jr cliffhanger which started a whole new genre in television known as the cliffhanger that ended a season on a unresolved note that made you need to come back you know in may the show ended for the season with some unresolved suspenseful ending that that made you want to need to come back in september when the new shows came back on to see what happened and that really became a phenomenon. Who shot J.R.? J.R. Ewing was one of the uh, popular 
characters on on this nighttime soap opera called Dallas. And at the end of the season episode, he was shot, and you only saw him go down. You didn't know who did it. And, of course, there were several people that could have and wanted to shoot Jr. because he was a, a scoundrel. And so for the three months of summer until the show came back in September, there, that's all, there were T-shirts. There was Who Shot Jr. Mania went went crazy in around the world not just in america but around the world who shot jr and i and ironically the the ending was was a little anticlimactic it wasn't really who anybody thought it was and it was kind of disappointing there were a lot of other storylines and other people that were more more interesting or intriguing possible people to have shot jr and when it turned out to be the uh, the character that it was everybody was Kind of disappointed, but everybody watched that show. Um, and so you had Dallas, you had Dynasty, you had Falcon Crest. There were just there were hun- there were not hundreds, but there were there were dozens of them. Many that stuck around for a few years, and and many that uh, that only stuck around for a season, if that. They really aren't around much anymore. Uh, they're if they are, there's they're only on you know there's only a couple of them, and they don't. They don't uh, attract the numbers that they used to. At it, it sometimes, the soap operas, both during the day and certainly the network soap operas, were the dominant shows on television. Sadly, today, network television isn't even dominant. Last week, the Golden Globes were on, and I don't think any of the TV shows were. I don't even know if any network shows were nominated, to be honest. Maybe a couple, but not many. Most of them were either streamed shows or cable shows. So I don't even know what network television you know, is, is doing. I mean, as I, I've said this several years ago, and I think it's coming true. It, 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 it's, it's not going to happen immediately, but I believe ultimately, I've said this before, I believe that network television ultimately will just be a spot that will be the outlet for big events like big sporting events like the Super Bowl or big uh, entertainment events like the Oscars. But day-to-day, the networks just, uh, they don't have that pull anymore. They just don't because they're stuck to a they're stuck to a, a schedule. And, and whereas viewers don't, don't do that anymore, there's, because it's free and over the public airwaves, they've got different uh, standards. They can't swear. They can't have nudity. Uh, they have to keep things, uh, you know, within a certain boundary of uh, storylines, whereas cable or streamers can swear all they want, show all the body parts they want, sexual overtones, you name it, they could do it. And so that's where people go. So it's been a very interesting evolution. But soap operas are still around. Some of them are are real soap operas, genuine soap operas that have been around for decades, since the beginning of television almost. But then there are some other soap operas on television and in our culture that are a touch of soap opera and reality show. 
which is pretty much what our whole world has come become now in the last 20 years, especially the last 10 or 15, thanks to social media. Our whole culture is one big soap opera. Our culture is one big, uh, you know, gossipy, water cooler kind of culture now. I don't know uh, how much you've been paying attention, especially over the last month or so couple of months but if you want to see a good soap opera you don't need to watch general hospital you don't need to watch all my children you don't need to watch some fictional fabricated uh absurdity of behavior and outcomes and and uh and characters that's basically what soap operas are it's a extension and elevation of reality which is kind of what reality shows are too but that's what hope operas were they took a little town as i said or they took a a workplace general hospital right and and then all the interpersonal relationships and um and events that happened at the hospital, to the people that worked at the hospital, people that went to the hospital, uh, you know, and then, of course, those people and so on and so on. And, 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 you know, the branches and the trees of all the relationships would grow. But it was an elevated, as I said before, kind of absurd, but there for entertainment value. It grabbed your interest. It entertained you. Eh, it didn't hurt anybody. You went about your business when it was done. But if you've been watching the news in the last couple of months, the soap opera is alive and well. The only problem is it's not fictional. It's not made up. And it does affect real life. Have you been watching some of the things in the news recently? A couple of weeks ago, there, you know, we had this, we had our midterm elections, and the Republicans took a slim majority in the House of Representatives, which meant that they were then able to reelect their own Speaker of the House, a very powerful position. People say, what's the big deal with the Speaker of the House thing? It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Not only does the Speaker of the House have control over what kind of bills are brought up for a vote, bills that will in many ways affect our lives, whether it's about taxes or or programs or you know, infrastructure projects and, 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 and other things that will, you know, stimulate the economy, create jobs. You, you can say all you want about government, but government plays in a major role in our lives. And the person who is the Speaker of the House wields a lot of power. That's why if you ever see the Speaker of the House, the gavel that they have is huge. It's not just a small little gavel that you see, like, you know, on a judge's desk. Even though judges determine life and death sometimes. But the gavel that the Speaker of the House has almost looks like it comes out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. 
It's something that that uh, you know the wily coyote has. Something that the, the roadrunner hits the wily coyote with, or something. <laughs> it's a huge thing. But there's a reason why it's that big because that seat and that position wields a lot of power, and so that the size of that gavel is 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 meant to have some kind of significance to say, hey, the person that gets to slam this thing has a lot of say in what's going on in the lives and the direction of this country. And so after several years of a Democratic House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi would was gone. She retired, actually, but she was going to lose her, her position anyway because the Republicans took over, and they were going to obviously put in one of their own. And uh, this representative from California, Kevin McCarthy, had been lobbying for this job for many years, was a big uh, opponent of the Democrats and a big opponent of, uh, of Nancy Pelosi and was, a, uh, was an ally of Donald Trump when he was president. And so he was considered the favorite. And, you know, I, I love politics. I've, I've, been, I've, I've enjoyed watching politics uh, from a young kid. My dad was, was, was always interested. We always would watch Meet the Press and those shows. So I was, was kind of raised on that. I always was reading the newspaper. Never got involved in politics myself because I always felt there was always a little bit of phoniness involved in it so i didn't really see myself in it but i certainly enjoyed the theater of it right i love pop culture i love entertainment and so i enjoyed the palace intrigue and the theater of politics the different characters the way they acted you know it's 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 basically shakespeare it's it's people that are power hungry. It's people that are ego driven. Uh, it's it's uh, it's backroom deals. It's uh, it's got it all, and that really came to play in the last couple of weeks as they as the House of Representatives voted for a new Speaker of the House. As I said, this is no small appointment the speaker of the house is the third person in line for the presidency actually if you want to say give the take the president out of it because he's already there he or she is already there so they're the second in line but the top three people there's the president there's the vice president and the third person is the speaker of the house one of my favorite shows is The West Wing. Once again, politics, right? Love that show. It was on for about, what, seven or eight, nine years. Martin Sheen was excellent as uh, President Bartlett. So many exciting, interesting performances, intriguing actors or characters. Uh, Many people that were in politics became consultants and writers for the show. Lawrence O'Donnell, who's on MSNBC every night, 
He used to consult on the show. He wrote several episodes. He even starred on the show as President Bartlett's father when they would do flashbacks when he was a kid. A lot of press secretaries like Dee Dee Myers and Marlon Fitzwater and, and others contributed ideas, many political writers bringing in you know, different ideas of things that really happened and then fictionalizing them for the sake of the show and, and letting these characters having to deal with those all at once. They've been showing it. I, I, it's, it's on HBO Max now. It used to be on Bravo for many years, and then it was gone for a while. Thankfully, it's back. It's, uh, it's on HBO Max now, and for some reason, Headline News Network, which is a sister station of CNN, has been showing more original programming and over the holidays around Christmas and New Year's and other kind of holidays, Thanksgiving, they've started to run, you know, like four or five day marathons. The show was on for seven seasons, but they were showing every episode for for, like for the first, you know, six seasons. I mean, it was like four or five days. It was every, it was just continual. And I have to admit, I watched quite a bit of them. I was binging on that because I hadn't seen many of those in a long time. Even though they're there, I'm still stuck into that thing. I, I, you know, I, you know, I, it must be my age. But I, I could watch right now if I wanted to. I could just go to HBO Max and watch all the episodes or any episode at all that I wanted to of West Wing. And yet I don't. But when it's on television... <laughs> When it's on some kind of a station, on a marathon or a binging thing, where I could binge on my own if I want, going to a streaming service, I could still do the same act of binging, but there's something about it being on. I don't know what that is, but I am still attracted to that. I don't I, I don't always binge on a streaming service, but I binge when it's on TV. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds crazy. It makes no sense, but I still do that. But there was a, in the West Wing, there was one of the best storylines was the Martin Sheen character. And I'm going to, and I'm going to reference this throughout my, this podcast today, because the show really does have a lot of parallels to reality. That's why it was so good. Once again, it was an elevated version but it still was grounded in a lot of truth in terms of uh the way people act and some of the circumstances that uh, that happened in the world and in the country that the president had to deal with one interesting aspect was the character of president bartlett it's the center of the show had multiple multiple sclerosis and he had it before he ran for president, but he never dis- he never disclosed it. And the disease continued to affect him where he could no longer hide it anymore. And there were a lot of implications. But, but what was interesting to my point here is, so he was in the throes of that, but this storyline also had to do with his daughter getting kidnapped, his teenage daughter getting kidnapped. And at the time, the vice president had 
to resign due to a sex scandal. And so at that moment, there was nobody, there was no vice president. And suddenly, so there's no vice president, and the president's daughter is kidnapped, supposedly by some terrorist group. And there's something called the 25th Amendment that allows the president to relinquish his powers temporarily during some kind of a crisis, if need be. And then he's able to take those powers back when the crisis is over. It's, in the 20, it's called the 25th Amendment. And so at a point, because his personal feelings, because there may have been a terrorist group that would have implications about bombing and going to war with a country or with, with a group, the question was, can the president make an, obs- an objective decision about going to war or bombing somebody when his family member is involved in the decision, the life and death of his family member? And the Martin Sheen character, Dr. President Bartlett, decided that he could not because you know he, he just couldn't be objective. He couldn't count on himself because he was thinking more like a father than thinking like a president, thinking of that one person rather than the other 300 million in the country and and what the implications could be for the world. And so he relinquished his power. Now, what what made this controversial is that without a vice president, which would be the normal chain of command, he didn't have a vice president. And so, therefore, the next in line was the Speaker of the House. John Goodman played the Speaker of the House, a character named Glenn Walken. Oh, one of his best performances ever. Only three or four episodes. Wasn't very long. Maybe one or two episodes. But, my gosh, was he good. And he's, there's a great scene when he is sworn in. And what made this even more controversial was not only did the Speaker of the House become president during this time, thanks to the 25th Amendment, as temporary as it would be, until this situation with uh, the president's daughter would be resolved one way or the other, whether they would find her and get her back or perhaps this terrorist group would kill her. One way or the other, this was going to be resolved and then the president would come back. But for a short time, maybe two or three or four days, he did relinquish the presidency, and it went to the Speaker of the House. And John Goodman, uh, That when they signed these papers that officially transferred the power, and John Goodman was sworn in in the Oval Office at you know two or three in the morning, had to be done quickly, with no great fanfare, but suddenly became president, uh, you know, the... the President Bartlett was still kind of giving orders and they do a tight close-up on John Goodman and he's looking at the president and he just looks at him and he goes you're excused Mr. President and it's true he was no longer president he he no longer for those even though he's in the Oval Office he's not sick but he relinquished his power And even though he's used to giving orders and having people snap when he talked, he suddenly was without that power. 
His staff was no longer beholden to him. They were beholden to the president. They served at the pleasure of the president. And at this point, he was not president. He would be again, but at that point, he wasn't. And it was a, it was just, a, oh, it's such a poignant and dramatic moment when John Goodman, especially back then, he was still big and burly, and he was just kind of, you know, grumbling. And, and so Martin Sheen is like, well, I think we should do this. And he just turned to him, and they do this close-up on him, and he just goes, your excuse, Mr. President. And his chief of staff, John Spencer, who sadly died a few years later, played a great role in that as Leo McGarry, just kind of nodded and he goes, you're excused, Mr. President. And Martin Sheen just put his head down and walked out of the Oval Office and went back to the residence. He was no longer the president. He was no longer making the decisions. So my point is, the Speaker of the House, and what made this such a, a controversial thing was that this John Goodman character was a Republican. There was a Republican House. There was a Republican uh Speaker of the House. So not only was he handing over his presidential powers, but he was handing his presidential powers over to the competing party. He didn't have a vice president. So that would still at least, you know, the, the, the country still run under the same kind of, uh, you know, vision. That's his vice president. But now he gave it to the opposing party who had their own ideas. While he's president, he could do whatever he wants. He could, he could, and he had control of the, of the, um, of the house. He could pass laws if they passed the Senate. I mean, he was only president for three or four days, but he could do a lot. He could, he could, he, he did do a bombing thing and they're worried about what he might even pass in terms of different laws. So the speaker of the house is an important job. No question. Speaker of the House helps determine the laws that are considered, bills that are considered to become laws that are going to help or hurt people's lives. And they are within a couple of heartbeats to the presidency. So it's an important job. That's why Kevin McCarthy was lobbying so hard for it. And when the Republicans took over, he was the leading candidate. Now, a lot of people had problems with him. He had ties to Trump. He was overly uh, overly conservative. They've been talking for several weeks, but, but the Republicans still had a majority. He needed 218 votes, and the Republicans had those votes in number, in theory. But that is if every Republican, because every Democrat was not going to vote for him, that would be if every Republican voted for him. But some Republicans were not in favor of him. Or at the very least, they wanted to show their dissatisfaction with him and some of his views. And all it took was a couple to not vote for Kevin McCarthy, which put the which should have just been a a rubber stamp, right? The Republicans are in charge. This is the person everybody agrees on, and they do it. But they didn't all agree on it. And I don't know if you saw, but it was starting to, you know, it was one or two votes, and that was okay, whatever. You know, people, you know, these other people that are holding out are just trying to make some kind of a stand, maybe cut a deal to get on a different committee, blah, 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 all this. And you don't need to know the, the you know, the inside baseball of it all. 
But then it became interesting. Because then it was three votes, and then it was six votes, and then it was nine votes, and it was going on from Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and it's like, what the heck is going on over there? And it got to 11 votes and still nothing. And I really, I was sort of paying attention through watching the news. But then as it got to this 11th and 12th, I'm like, well, they were starting to announce when the votes would be on. And so I started to watch them on, you know, on the cable news stations. They were carrying the votes live. And this was theater at its best. This was a soap opera. It it had every component of a soap opera. There was there was jealousy, there was ego and narcissism, there was power struggles. There were alliances and lies and broken promises. Everything that goes on in a soap opera I don't know how much of the romance was going on or the lust. That I don't know about. (laughs) But all those other things that make a great play, that make great theater, that make a great soap opera were there going on in the House of Representatives of the United States of America. And then they delay after the they 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 delayed a vote, and then they came back the next morning, and then there was another, and he still wasn't getting it. So I'm watching this a couple, you know, Fridays ago and Saturdays, and you can't believe what's going on. And at one point, they come back at ten o'clock. They they adjourned at noon after a vote that didn't go, that still didn't have a. And there was the clerk of the of the House of Representatives, African American woman, who for at least a week became a huge star. Because she was the one who would declare that a winner and a speaker had not been elected. She would call the you know the the vote to to order. So she became a star for about a week. You could see the way her clothes changed. At the beginning, she figured out well, you know, she wore whatever she wanted. And as the week went on and she realized she's gonna be on TV more, you could notice that her 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 she got a like a makeover. Her wardrobe got got a little different, a little nicer, a little more stylish, her hair, because she was on TV all the time. <laughs> Just like a soap opera. But it got so crazy, they they they, they did a uh an adjournment until from like noon till ten o'clock at night, so other uh, Republican voters could fly. They were out of town. Somebody was having a baby. Someone was having surgery. They, they to fly people back to Washington so they could vote for McCarthy to finally end this. And similar things. They were similar storylines on West Wing. I was watching this around the same time, going, "Oh my gosh, this is this is hilarious." That show was not all fiction. There was a an episode where they. We're going to vote on a on a bill, and they were coming in and hiding because the speaker didn't think that they had enough votes. I mean, you know, all this all this parliamentary and and backstabbing kind of stuff, and that's what was going on here. 
So then they came back at 10 o'clock at night, and now they had 10 hours to make the back behind the scenes, you know, backroom deals, and everybody, all the commentators on television, everybody was saying how Kevin McCarthy was finally going to get it, you know, on this vote. No question. He's finally going to get it. I don't know if it was the 12th or 13th or 14th vote, whatever it was. But everybody was positive. Kevin McCarthy gave a speech that, that, you know, before he said, well, now this has taken long, but I've learned how to govern and blah, blah, blah. And they have, you know, to do it according to the rules. Somebody has to officially nominate him. And one of his strong allies gave this flowing speech and was telling jokes. And it was because it just seemed like it was they, they had the votes. They made all the deals. So it seemed like we're going to get enough of the majority to win. Now, we know we have those votes. You could just see there was a confidence by everybody. McCarthy was walking very straight and and smiling, all of his supporters. They had spoken to the people that had been, uh, you know, voting against him regularly through the week, and they were confident that they were able to convince them to finally vote for him after a week and after all these, you know, voting for other people or voting present, whatever it is, voting for the Democrats sometimes. And it came down, when they started this vote, everybody's ready, this is all set, it's a done deal now, we waited 10 hours, we made all the deals, we're all set, we're going to win by this many numbers. And this one senator, Senator Gates, who's a controversial guy all unto himself, and who was one of these people who was a staunch anti-McCarthy person, did not vote for him. And everybody was in shock. They thought he was at first. He didn't vote when his name was called. He was, and then he they they after the, if that happens, he was out of the room. Then they come back to pick up anybody else who wasn't able to vote the first time around. So they thought he was just doing this for the drama of it. After you know a week of this, but he obviously told them he was going to vote for him, and when the time came, he didn't. And everybody was in shock. McCarthy was in shock. Everybody in the House was shocked. The Democrats loved it. Um, the commentators were didn't know what to say because they were already presuming he was going to win and anointing McCarthy. And the, they were going to adjourn. This was, I believe, Friday night, Saturday morning. They were going to adjourn till Monday. And they had voted whether to adjourn or not. And then in a last minute, all of a sudden the cameras, you know, the commentators didn't know what was going on. The commentator, I mean, now it's like it's like midnight. It's 10 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock, especially on the East Coast. It's 1 o'clock. This has been going on for three hours. They thought this was going to be over in 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, they showed McCarthy and Gates speaking. McCarthy, you know, and at one point, after Gates made that no vote, talk about soap opera, a fellow Republican came running at Gates. He had to be restrained. We had violence. 
It was like Macbeth. It was like some Shakespearean, you know, tragedy, like Caesar. <laughs> he had to be restrained. He was going to run at him. Like, what the hell are you doing? And he, and he didn't say what the hell either. So there was all this drama, all this elevated sense of, of overdramatic and characters and lies and deceptions and ego. It was all there. And then Gates decided to change his vote to adjourn and then to change his vote. And in fact, he did vote for McCarthy. And McCarthy took over with that big giant gavel at like, you know, 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning, Eastern time. It was pure drama. It was a soap opera. And now we will see if the soap opera continues because... There's going to be a lot of questions as to how much power and how strong this coalition of Republicans will stay together or will on every on every major piece of legislation will we have this same kind of fractured where 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 bills are seemingly going to pass and then they can't get the votes and these things do affect us. They are going to be talking about Social Security and Medicare and infrastructure and, and college loan. What, I mean, the, the things that, that we do deal with on a daily basis. Why this, this does look like theater. While this does look like an out-of-control soap opera. We should pay attention to this. Because throughout all the, the, the all over all the, the narcissism and backstabbing, it does affect our lives. So hopefully you were up that night watching this, enjoying the drama, but also realizing the seriousness of this. And hopefully you keep your eye on what's gonna happen because the soap opera is just beginning in terms of the House of Representatives. So keep your eye on that. If you're a soap opera fan, Keep your eye on the House of Representatives. Now, have you seen another soap opera kind of character to emerge once again in our government, once again in the House of Representatives? Have you heard of this representative from California, or I'm from New York, called George Santos? He was just elected in November from the 3rd Congressional District in New York, 34 years old. And suddenly, it comes out after the election, after he's been elected, it is it is told or it is revealed that this guy's entire biography this guy's entire background has been fabricated. He lied on his resume and his biography when he was running and raising money for months. He lied about his education. He lied about his ancestry in terms of his name and, his, and, and, and who he was. He lied about his employment. He lied about his religious background. He lied about his the property he owned. Every, every almost everything he talked about and who he portrayed himself as was a lie. 
He said that he was Jewish. He had Holocaust survivors. This guy lied. He he tried to create his background to to to, to touch every type of interest group, every type of issue that he could appeal to. His last name is Santos, so he said he was an immigrant and he could appeal to the Latino community. He also said he was part Jewish, that his family uh, ancestors uh, survived the Holocaust. He said he worked for prestigious companies in New York, financial companies, investment companies. He said that uh, he had cancer at one time. He was a cancer. I mean, he picked, he, there wasn't, there wasn't one stone unturned. He, he, be, he, he created a background for himself to touch every interest group so that everybody could have a reason to vote for him. If you were a cancer survivor, you felt sorry for him. If uh, you were a Latino, you wanted to vote for him. If you were a Jew, you wanted to vote for him. Uh, he, 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 he lied about his credentials to make himself look like he was some prominent person. It came out just last week that he, that he paid one of his um, fundraisers to pretend to be, and I mentioned Kevin McCarthy, to, he paid one of his people to be to pretend while he's raising money for his campaign. He paid somebody to pretend to be Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff to call people that like Donald Trump to say, "Look, I'm Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff, and we want you to donate to George Santos because he thinks like Trump and he thinks like McCarthy. So get him in there." It turns out this guy was lying. He wasn't the chief of staff for McCarthy, but he raised money based on that. (laughs) It's amazing. In this day and age, you'd think with access to information so so easy, you, you can't believe that someone would get away with something like this. But this is, sadly... Something that plays to a bigger problem in our society, too. And I've talked about social media. I've talked about the disintegration of journalism. My question is, where was this information before the election? Why didn't we know what a fraud this guy was? Why didn't we know that? Where was the Republican Party who put him up as a candidate doing some vetting, doing some background checks to make sure what he, who he said he was, he was. And in today's world, it's easy to find that information. And even more importantly, where was the press? Why did we find out about this six weeks after the election when people couldn't take their votes back? If he would have, if, if, if he would have, if it would have come out that he was fabricating so much about his background, he never would have won. It is the press's job. We depend on them to do that kind of of vetting and background checks. That's part of their job. 
Yes, it's part of the Republicans party, Republican Party to do that as well, but it's also the watchdog job of the press to do that for the people before an election so that they can make an educated and informed decision. And the press used to do that. There used to be a process. There was people that worked the beat. There were people, there were editors. And in today's world, I mean, all of a sudden, once once there was a hint that this was happening, then all of a sudden, the press all jumped on it, and they were able to find that he never worked at these companies, he said, that he wasn't Jewish, that he didn't have any uh, you know, family. There was no record of, his, of him working at these places. There was no rec- record of him attending these schools. There was no record of his family ever being Jewish or being in the Holocaust. They, then, one, they, once they got wind of this, then they found out all this information, but it's too late. Why wasn't when this person became a candidate for several months, that bio was sitting there. Not one journalist in New York, local or national, bothered to check. When you read this, when you read his bio, it almost sounds too good to be true. Well, guess why it was sounded too good to be true? Because it was too good to be true. But in today's world, we don't have the same kind of journalism and press that we used to. Everybody's just worried about either getting it, getting it out there or talking about the fighting and, the once again, the intrigue. But there's a lot of nuts and bolts that used to be a part of journalism that was a, was, a, was a foundation of journalism. It was the trust between the public and the press, and the press has given that up. If you go online and you read some stories, how many times do you read stories? There's complete wrong facts in there, or there's complete misspellings. That's because people aren't editing. People aren't fact-checking. That used to be a thing. I worked at newspapers. There, was, there were two people. When I would write a story, before it went to print, there were two sets of eyes, including my own, because I edited it before I turned it in. But there were two other sets of eyes who would read the story and then come back to me and ask me, is this correct? What are you saying here? You need that there was that was their job. They were copy editors. They were fact checkers. And we are seeing that that is going down that is 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 being eliminated. This the press has no excuse for this. This care this this candidate was out there. His bio was online for anybody to read. For anyone to check. They were able to check it once there was a whiff that it wasn't true. But why wasn't somebody there as their job? Okay, here are the candidates. My job, before I even get started to cover this campaign, my job is to verify everything in this bio. 
If they would have done that, they would have seen this House of Cards fall in a second, and George Santos would not have been elected. Or perhaps he would have been elected, but at least the voters would have had a chance to make an informed decision. The press dropped the ball on this, and that's what's sad. We have lost, we are losing journalism, and, and once again, this does affect us. You say, oh, Jim, you you're might be a little sensitive because you used to be in the newspaper world of journalism. No, no. How we get our information, where we get it, how we get it, and who's helping us to get it is important. And we have lost that. We have become, the, the, the press has become just as biased or just as flighty as the rest of us. And, and the press was put up there to be the watchdog. That's the job. They dropped the ball. They didn't serve their constituent. They didn't serve their audience. They didn't serve the American people. It would have been very easy to do a background check on George Santos for months before the election. Not one journalist did it. And then somebody seemed, after the election, seemed to say, you might want to check this. Not sure where the, the leak came or the little nudge came, but somebody told somebody. And then the House of Cards c- collapsed. But it doesn't matter. He won the election. Now, they're looking for ways that they might be able to uh, to get him out, maybe if he broke the law or something. But the lying is not a law. He didn't break a law when he lied about his bio. It was up to us, and in many ways, we looked to the press to do that job for us, and they didn't do it. That's dangerous. That's sad. We're becoming one big water cooler, one big gossip place. We're more worried about who said about what and blah, 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 as opposed to the nuts and bolts. There's no question. That nuts and bolts stuff is boring. Who wants to start calling up uh, all these different agencies and and, and doing a background check on, on a candidate? That's boring stuff when you could be writing about the gossipy, juicy stuff. But that's not what we need. We need the boring nuts and bolts. The people deserved, they could have still elected George Santos, but they had the right to know that he made up a great deal of his background, if not all of it, in his bio. Then they could have voted for him if they could have said, I don't care. He he, he shares, he's going to vote Republican, I'm going to vote for him. They could have, he still could have got elected. But the, but the electorate didn't have a chance to know that this guy was a alleged huge liar here. Allegedly, and I'm going to say that just to cover myself here, we don't know, but it's been, it's, it seems as if the press has, has done their due diligence now. But it's, it was too late. And the press needs to accept that blame. And now, of course, they're scrambling, and now they're digging up everything, you know, from when he was five years old. But where was that scrutiny when we needed it? George Santos is a representative right now. He got elected. He created an entire false background 
so he could appeal to every kind of voter, and it worked. And now it turns out that we find out he was that he was most likely lying about everything, or a great deal of it. And there's really not much we can do. We'll see if he broke a law; they might be able to to remove him. But but you you can be a scoundrel and run for office. You just don't get elected because the people realize you're a scoundrel and they don't elect you. So what he did wasn't against any rules or laws necessarily, fabricating his background, lying on his resume. But the press dropped the ball in doing their homework and revealing that and vetting him to give the voters a chance. That's dangerous, folks. And now, <laughs> the most latest, the latest craziness is that after Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago was raided for him having classified documents, and there was so much indignation on everybody's side, on the Democratic side, including President Biden, calling him completely, totally irresponsible, blah, 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 and trying to to convict him on, on this for the last several months. Whether you like Trump or not, I'm just pointing things out here. I'm not taking anybody's side. But fair is fair. They were condemning Donald Trump for doing this, possibly, you know, security breaches and um, and leaks and sensitive information getting to our enemies, uh, you know, the downfall of democracy, all this hyperbole. And then guess what? President Biden had similar classified information in his office that he had at the University of Pennsylvania that was not secured. It was locked in a closet. It was not secured by the CIA or the FBI. It was basically the same situation. It'll be interesting to see if we treat this the same way. The people that hate Trump are making excuses for Biden's and and saying that Biden's was not as bad as Trump's, but you can't have it both ways, folks. And that's why we're so divided right now. And that's why it does matter how we get our information. It does matter who's giving us our information. And it does matter what's going on in our government. That soap opera that was going on in the House of Representatives wasn't just high drama. It was who we are. I was watching some news from from around the world, some international news, and they were reporting on this early in the week and so on. The whole world wasn't just high drama for us. As the United States, what we do every day, the world looks at and judges us. They've been judging us for the last several years about how dysfunctional we are, how divided of a country we are. Deservedly so. And then we have this soap opera, this comedy of errors going on, which only continues 
to have the rest of the world scratching their heads going, what's going on in the United States? We're living in a soap opera, folks. And that's not the best place to live because if you ever watch the soap opera, you know it's full of chaos. It's full of of I don't even know what the word would be a heightened reality, but but a heightened reality that is not good. It's silly. We can't afford to be living in a in a in a culture and society that's absurd and ego driven and silly and not moving forward with us. So I'm saying here, folks, is we've got soap operas. They may not be called All in the Family. They may not be called General Hospital. But they're called reality, sadly. They're called our government. (laughs) And we can't switch to chasing. We can't change the channel. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 347. I'm Jim Toronto. I am here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.